Hello all and welcome to another episode of Aghast at the Past, 1892. First off, not a lot of new news in the Lizzie Borden case. There's been a bit of a lull in the action as the coroner's inquest has ended, but the grand jury investigation has been postponed until November, while both sides build their cases. In the meantime, Lizzie bides her time in jail, as rumors abound, and newspapers try to do their own investigations, sometimes in desperation, embellishing facts, making mountains out of the tiniest molehills of information. As an example, the Fall River Daily Herald, in its September 15th issue, page 7, interviewed Lizzie's uncle, Isaac L. Borden, who proclaimed, I believe Lizzie Borden is guilty of the crime for which she has been held by the coroner's jury. And I also believe the grand jury will indict her. I have followed this case from the beginning and have come to the conclusion that the only living person who had the opportunity to kill the old people was Lizzie Borden. When asked how he explained the absence of bloodstains on Lizzie's clothes, Mr. Borden said, That is easily accounted for. She could have worn a rubber cloak while doing the deed, and the bloodstains on that could have been washed off with hot water in a few minutes. When you ask me what was the girl's motive, I say there is no apparent motive to my mind, unless it be that Lizzie thought her father had made a will in which he allowed her but little money, or else she knew he did not make one and would rather he did not make one. I think the girl was insane when she did it. I do not see how a jury can convict her. There is no evidence to show she killed her father. And if the Commonwealth tries her, I think she will be acquitted. I would sit in a jury room until I rotted, before I would convict her on the evidence thus far brought out. My opinion is, the district attorney will try her for killing her father, and if she is acquitted, she will be immediately rearrested for killing her mother. Let's continue on with more strange September true crime tales. First up, an article from the St. Louis Globe Democrat, printed on September 16th, about a tragedy that had happened just one week earlier. Let's jump right in. Louisville, Kentucky, September 15th. As time passes, the mystery grows and interest increases in the cases of Mrs. Emma Austin and Mrs. Eugenia Sherrill, found dead in their room a week ago. Then it was thought to be an ordinary case of suicide of two fallen women, one without shame, the other a disgraced wife. Today it is declared to be a double murder with mystery enough for a Dumas, and scandal enough to satisfy a Sardo. I hope I pronounced that right. Wicked Paris could not stir up a more sensational 
or mysterious story than that developed in the last few hours. To make it complete, it is necessary to review the case. Last Saturday morning, Mrs. Emma Austin, keeper of an immoral resort, was found dying in her room on 2nd Street, near Market, in this city. In another room, in the same house, Mrs. Eugenie Sherrill, the respected wife of a young businessman, was found dead. Suicide by poison was the first theory. As days went by, hints about murder were set afloat. And then the coroner received an anonymous letter telling him to summon certain persons as witnesses and compel them to tell all they knew. The persons named in the letter are Vincent Spanninger, Josephine Cole, Police Officer Feeney and Emma Koch, a daughter of Mrs. Austin. A quiet investigation was set on foot, and astounding facts have been brought out. It has been developed that Spanninger, who is a businessman of some standing, and who has a wife and children and is looked on as a model husband by his neighbors, had been living not a double, but a quadruple life. He occupied the position of husband to four women, besides his lawful wife. These women were Mrs. Austin, her daughter, Mrs. Emma Koch, and Mrs. Cole, and her daughter, Carrie Cole. The women lived in different parts of the city, and Mrs. Austin, who had been the man's mistress 20 years, was the only one of the four who knew positively of the relations that existed between Spanninger and the others. Mrs. Koch had suspicions that Spanninger was criminally intimate with her mother, and the daughter and mother quarreled about this. Mrs. Cole, a jealous woman, repeatedly quarreled with Spanninger. The peculiar relations of Spanninger to these women and the jealousy of Mrs. Cole furnished a slight clue to the detectives, and they had been at work on the case. Spanninger and Mrs. Cole had been arrested, and the woman has confessed that she wrote the anonymous letter to the coroner. She says that Spanninger told her on more than one occasion that he intended to get rid of Mrs. Austin. And on the day of the tragedy, he was at her house and told her in an excited manner, to say nothing. Spanninger denies that he knows anything of the poisoning and asserts that Mrs. Cole is actuated by jealousy. It has not been established that he was about Mrs. Austin's house on the day of the tragedy, but he was there on the night before. The poison, according to theory, was administered through the batter cakes which Mrs. Austin prepared for breakfast. Spanninger, it is asserted by a neighbor, left Mrs. Austin's early the night before the killing, and as he was going away, said he would be back for breakfast, and asked the woman to have hotcakes for him. He did not go back, however. So far, the circumstantial evidence against Spanninger is strong, but there is a break and another clue. Mrs. Emma Koch, 
the daughter of Mrs. Austin, who, as stated above, had quarreled with her mother over the division of Spanninger's affections, visited the house early on the day of the tragedy and was on hand when her mother died. The moment the woman breathed her last, Mrs. Coke began clearing up the breakfast things. She took particular pains to get rid of the scraps of the batter cakes and the batter left on the dishes. Why did she do this? Is the question those working on the case are asking. Mrs. Sherrill was an innocent victim of either a black-hearted man who wanted to get rid of an old mistress or of a revengeful woman. No one knew that she would take breakfast with Mrs. Austin. Carrie Cole, the fourth mistress of this modern Don Juan, is a young and handsome girl who has gone to the bad merely because her mother set the example. When the mother and Spanninger were arrested, she drove to the jail in her carriage to see them. At the examining trial today, these two were admitted to bail in $5,000 each. Mrs. Coke is being watched by the police. Off now to the Times of Philadelphia, page one. This is a weird and disturbing story. The title, Looking for Her Child, An Eight-Year-Old Girl Abducted by a Blind Man. Indianapolis, September 10th. For several weeks past, to last Monday, a blind man, led by a little girl, begged about the city, and it is said received a liberal charity on account of the attractiveness of the child whom he represented as his daughter. Today, the superintendent of police received the following letter. Dear sir, will you please search the city for a blind man and little girl? I was called here from Cleveland, Ohio last fall by the sickness of my husband and left my little girl in the care of a blind man and his wife who had lived in the same house with us for over a year. And in the meantime, they left the city. And I cannot find out where they live. And we have not the means to look for them. The man is of medium size, has gray curly hair, and is about 64 years old. He plays and sings songs and sells them. His name is Bruno Moorman. The little girl is light, has big blue eyes, light curly hair, and a large dimple in each cheek and poor teeth. She is eight years old. She has a sear on the top of one of her ears where a dog bit her. Her name is Anna Kennard. Now, will you let me know as soon as you receive this if you will look for her and oblige? Mrs. Alice Kennard, 207 Harrison Street, Port Richmond, Philadelphia. The description of the pair, as given by the writer, tallies precisely with the parties, but a diligent search by the detective force has failed to locate them. And finally, here is a report about a terrible tragedy at the Ohio Fair. 
This published as a special telegraph to the Pittsburgh Dispatch, page 7. A week of calamity culminates in a peculiar accident to 40 or 50 visitors. Columbus, Ohio, September 15th. This seems to be a calamity week, and the thousands of visitors to the state fair will have occasion to remember their stay in the capital city of the state. A few minutes after 9 o'clock tonight, just after the display of fireworks in the Capitol Square, which were witnessed by probably 30,000 people, the second serious accident of the week occurred in front of the Neal House block. James Leach, a crippled dwarf, whose limbs and arms are shriveled up and who makes his living by attending fairs and whistling on the street, was entertaining the crowd on High Street, just south of the Neal House entrance, when the huge jam of people, consisting of men, women, and children, crowded on the glass grating over the sidewalk. Without a moment's warning, a section of the grating, about 8 by 20 feet, gave way and precipitated 40 or 50 people to the bottom of the basement. The people went down in the mass of broken glass and twisted iron, piled three and four deep. Instantly, there was the greatest excitement. A heart-rending scream went up from the women and mingled with the cries of the children and the moanings of the injured. A swaying mass of people crowded around the place, and for some moments the jam was so great that no assistance could be rendered the unfortunate victims of the accident. Finally, the police pushed the crowd back, stretched a rope, and the work of rescuing commenced. Those who were last to go down escaped with slight bruises, but the unfortunate first were crushed, bruised, and battered up. Many having broken arms and legs with ugly cuts from which the blood flowed profusely. In the heap were young and old, women and men, and children. The most seriously injured was James Leach, the cripple, aged about 30 years. He was unable to walk because of his shriveled limbs, and his arms were almost useless at best. In the fall, both of his legs and left arm were broken, his face cut in a dozen places, and he was bruised about the body. His injuries are considered fatal. His home is in Pleasantville, Ohio. This ends another episode of A Guest at the Past, 1892. Until next time.